0: Welcome to How Hard Can It Be Up Close and Personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital, big time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at miketrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. This week, my guest is my longtime friend and co-conspirator Jim Crowley, who most recently served as the CEO of Skyhook Wireless. Before that, Jim was the CEO and president of Buy With Me, and before that of Turbine, a massive multiplayer gaming company that was acquired by Warner Brothers in 2010. Jim and I worked closely together at MQ before that, where he was our chief operating officer and ran our gateway business, while I was the GM of mobile advertising and interactive TV. I particularly enjoyed our conversation about that time, uh, which uh, was a lot more uh, uh, challenging than uh, history would seem to indicate. Um, Jim actually started his career as an attorney at Hale & Door, a Boston law firm from 1992 to 1994. He holds a JD from the University of Pennsylvania uh, and a BA in economics and philosophy from Connecticut College. And today's second segment, Jim and I will talk about the importance and the challenges of business model innovation, something that provides a thread line through his entire career and a challenge I know faces more and more entrepreneurial leaders as the rate of change and innovation increases around the world. While this episode's on the long side, I think you're going to love hearing it as much as I enjoyed making it. It's a chance to get to know someone I consider one of the finest people in the startup ecosystem, not only for his individual talents and track record, but because of the values of team and family that, as you'll hear for yourself, originated in a childhood spent right in the middle of a whole mess of Crowley brothers and sisters in a house where everybody was expected to do their part. All right, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio. Radically simple. Here now is my conversation with my good friend Jim Crowley. Thank you for uh, schlepping out to uh, Waltham on this miserable winter evening. It's not quite winter yet. We got a couple days.
1: We got a couple days. <laughs> That's right.
0: We are, uh, and it's a super moon. We're bearing down on the on the solstice. It's like it feels like it gets dark at three thirty. Days
1: are about to start getting longer. I would say it's almost springtime.
0: That's uh, was profoundly optimistic with characteristic optimism. Um, so, uh, I always start these things with the
1: same question and that is where did you grow up? I grew up in New London, Connecticut, right. uh, which is on the, I'd call it the Boston sports side of Connecticut. Um, Connecticut river is sort of a dividing line. So I'm east of the Connecticut river. Right.
0: Giant fans
1: over on the other I, side. Exa- giant Yankees, Sox, Pats Got it. and Celtics on, uh, on the east side. Got it. And, and,
0: and what kind of family did you grow up in? How big?
1: Uh, my family is actually a really important, uh, part of my life. Um, I'm one of nine kids. Nine children. Nine children. Wow. Nine children. And uh, Catholics? Mary, Mary Robin Allen, Jack James, my glass, to timmy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we are all 12 years apart, within 12 years of each other. Wow. Densely packed. Uh, densely packed. Uh, very symmetrical. I'm number five of the nine. So I four older siblings and four younger siblings. I have two older brothers and two older sisters and two younger brothers and two younger sisters. Wow. So, yeah.
0: That's very uh, mathematical precision there. Yeah, well,
1: it certainly wasn't planned. (laughs) (laughs) Given my parents, it was not planned. It was not planned. So, um, this is a sort of
0: odd question, but how does growing up in a family that size affect you? Like, as an adult, how how do you... uh, You must carry that around in in subtle and important ways. Like, what, what are your thoughts on how?
1: I would say... It's more than effects. I, I would say defines. Yeah, I would say defines. Uh, it's something that I carry with me um, every day. The first, I get a lot of, wow, you're the middle child. And it's, the actual dynamic is actually a little bit different, uh, and it's fascinating, because I am the youngest of the oldest children. And I am the oldest of the younger children. Um, So I would argue that uh, the middle child is a little bit of the oldest and the youngest uh, combined. But more importantly, my dad was in the military. My mom uh, stayed at home and raised us. And we learned very early on, probably as a function of the need to survive, that we had to function as a group and as a team. Uh, Didn't have a lot of money. Um, We just to get in and out of the house and all share the shower and have the, the ability to get in the shower and out of the shower so the next person can get yeah. there. It was, uh, it, was a, it was a production cycle, um, and, and we had to learn to optimize. We had to learn to, to share. We had to learn to fight. Uh, to survive and to support uh, but my, my siblings are my, my closest friends yeah. um, to this day you know after my, my parents died I could never quite figure out how they managed to put us all through college How
0: old were you when that
1: uh, My parents both died uh, when I was in law school my second year of law school oh, right I was I guess 23 24 uh, they both died within six months of each other it was a, that was a rough year but it was actually there's a lot of strength for my family and siblings that, that sure. came out of that Did your parents
0: do you feel like they were encouraging you as individuals, or was there a model that was a,
1: of expectation in the Crowley household? Or There was. It was not overt. Uh, we were all driven. For, my dad was an academic. Uh, my dad graduated from the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, they sent him up to MIT. He became the dean of physical ocean sciences at the Coast Guard Academy. So for a military family, I didn't have to move around a lot. Right. Uh, the Eagle.
0: I've been there. That's, the Eagle. That's yes. sailing vessel. Yes. Well, I'll
1: tell you actually an interesting story. Uh, when I was a kid... You Used to if you were the son of a coast, Gu- uh, son or daughter, I uh, might have just only been a son at that time. I can't remember of a of a Coast Guard family. It was sort of like the Boy Scouts, but you could actually sail on the Eagle, and they would sail it up from the Navy Yard to yeah. in Baltimore up to. For, the for those people, people
0: who don't know, the Eagle is like a three-masted sailing
1: vessel. It's a bark, yeah, usually uh, a bark, but it? it's a, the t- America's Tall Ship. It, it's Incredible. America's Tall Ship. Yeah, uh, but the year I was old enough, they had to cancel the program because of insurance reasons. Ugh. So my older siblings got to do it. I I could not. Oh, that sucks.
0: All right, so so you're so you, you sort of grow up in that background, and um, and uh, you were saying like the, the model. Yeah, So
1: in, in terms of the model, the um, education was very very important in my household, and it wasn't. It was that you were applying yourself to something, not so much that you were applying yourself to something that my mom or dad wanted you to apply. We didn't get to watch TV when we were kids during a, what we call on school nights um we did schoolwork, we played, we read and often we would play question and answer games with my dad where he would choose a particular field of study or topic whether or not it not be biology or geography or and just quiz us and we turned it into a game um, but it, it was great uh, and and it was incredibly supportive of my parents and um, and they the real question was what was the right place for you what was the right thing for you uh as opposed to what do we want you to be
0: it's it's tricky you know my you know my wife and i say that um you know your job as a parent is to help them be the best them they can be not to turn you not to turn them into whatever you want them to <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think um, that's very well said um and uh, but it's hard it's hard because you bring your own shit to it right you you uh, you can't help but project your own experience onto your kids and, and want for them the things that you know will be successful. But it's, I, I find it, it requires conscious effort, you know, not to fall into the trap.
1: So um, where did you go to undergrad? I went to Connecticut College in New London, Connecticut, which, interestingly enough, is my same hometown. Um, but they gave me the most financial aid, so that seemed to be a, a good, good way to go. And
0: did you know you wanted to go on to law school while you were an undergrad? Or? I had
1: a very strong interest in politics uh, when I was a kid, and still do. So, I knew I wanted to go to a liberal arts college. So yeah, and that sort of led me into a small liberal arts college. My dad was very focused on trying to have me be at a smaller school. He thought it would be uh, good for me. And he challenged me to, to try to uh, find that home. and Connecticut was a was a great it was foundational. It was, it was wonderful.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful campus. Yeah, it's fun, charming. Yeah. Um, and did you go to law school there, or did you go someplace
1: else? I went to University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia.
0: Penn, Cornell's arch rival. Yeah,
1: well, <laughs> yes, indeed. And Did you go right after undergrad, or did you? No, work for I, a while? I worked for I guess about a year and a half. I needed to make some money didn't really make a lot of money. Uh, But I wanted to try to get my feet wet a little bit before going to grad school. Uh, And I was working at the time, I think it was at that time, it was called Pete Marwick Management Consulting. Sure, Uh, New London, Connecticut is, at that time especially, was uh, central to the military-industrial complex. The largest employer in the state was actually Electric Boat. We built nuclear submarines. Indeed, most of my friends' dads either built submarines or sailed on submarines or something of that nature. Uh, And there was a consulting office there that was focused on uh management disciplines and, and trying to help the that particular group of folks better manage their businesses and i was a young associate who didn't know anything uh trying to uh probably put together what we're at this time we would call powerpoint presentations yeah
0: what do they call them uh, foils they call them foils, yeah, I, well, I, I
1: remember <laughs> it was so hard to you it's like crazy transparency <laughs> Transparencies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. it was amazing <laughs> you you uh,
0: go in with this expectation of maybe pursuing a political career after law school immediately or did you want to
1: go? So um, I also managed some local political campaigns uh, for state representative and the like and beat, we beat the incumbent which I'm still to this day proud of uh, and then I got to law school and uh, my original plan was to actually go back to the London Connecticut area and Immerse myself in the local legal community and political community.
0: Lincoln esque, Lincoln esque, very Lincoln esque, <laughs> uh, uh,
1: and uh, not quite as tall, but equally goofy looking. Um, I left law school though with a tremendous amount of debt—a tremendous amount of debt from undergrad and, and law school, uh, which is not an uncommon occurrence. It's interesting because it gets a, a lot of play now, but I, you know, at that time, you know, this is 1991 when I graduated from law school. Uh, you know. About 110 grand between undergrad and law school debts, I pretty much borrowed my way through. Um, so going back and working in London was not just a, it just wasn't a, a practical sure. thing for me to do. So I ended up uh, coming to Boston.
0: Right. What was our first job out of, out of school?
1: At uh, a law school, I had the good fortune of working at a firm called Hale and now Wilmer Cutler. Um, they all merged and changed and Sure. Uh, but one of, the great, one of the great Boston law firms. It was one of the great Boston law firms. Yeah. And I was, <clears throat> was very privileged and honored to be uh, an associate in, in that firm. Right. What was that experience like? It was eye-opening and fascinating and frustrating uh, and fun and... Uh, you're, you're young, you're trying to take on the world. Um, you get to do some really interesting things and meet some really fascinating people. And Helen Dora had some fascinating people. Uh, if you ever saw the the film of Civil Action. Sure. Uh, you know, Jerry Fasher, the, the guy who was representing the corporation, sat three doors down from me or four doors down from me, or guys like Jim Sinclair Clair, and, and just guys, local legal giants like Bill Lee. Uh, just fascinating guys you're exposed to. Um, and you get to experiment and explore uh, all sorts of different areas uh, of, of business. Really, our customers, our clients were commercial clients, so they were businesses. Uh, whether or not you were on the corporate side or the litigation side, you had to try to figure out what their businesses were and what they were doing and try to read uh, into it. And as a young associate, you get to move around a, a fair amount, and they, they were very flexible in allowing me to move around, and that was that was. Uh, I'm thankful for that.
0: It's interesting. It's it's in many ways uh, analogous to you know as a young agency guy, um, you know you're you're you focus you have all that thing all that that sort of for a curious mind it's great to be working on one industry in the morning and then another one at it's night fascinating. and fascinating you can't beat it, uh, and it also has the the burden of of, of billable hours too. It does have uh, that burden. <laughs> so you
1: to that you work really hard. But honestly, that's goes back to my upbringing. I mean, whether or not it was. You know we had snow here the other day and I, I joke with my kids I'm like what, what are you guys doing uh, by the time I was your age I had, like shoveled 50 walks and and because that's how we survived yeah uh yeah. but you know you get billable hours so you're working 80 90 hours a week uh it's it's what was required but it, it was but that's fun. It, it's it's also uh it's a camaraderie uh goes back to this sense of teamwork which is always very important to me it's a right. sense of and I was uh, an athlete. I like to think I was an athlete. Uh, and team is very important to me. And when you're going through that, you're going through it with a group in a class. And it's just what you do. It's you fun. played soccer in college, right? I did play soccer. Yeah. yeah. So how long did you take? How long were you were you at the law firm? And I left in my uh, close to the end of my third year. It was actually going quite well uh, from a professional standpoint. Uh, and it was fascinating, as I was saying before. But there was a level of frustration i had and the level of frustration was driven by it seemed that the arc of so much of what we were doing involved trying to fix other people's problems and that's there's a lot to that and that's that's a wonderful career and a lot of interesting things and academically excuse me not academically but intellectually it was very challenging but the it it was frustrating in that you would you'd get to a point and then you'd hand it over and then you'd leave and go on to the next client So this sense of ownership and what happened with it and where does it go from here, even though those clients could be clients for many, many years. I wasn't long enough there for them to be my clients for many years. But it was frustrating, and I was wrestling with that. And uh, fortunately, um, a very good friend of mine from college, a guy by the name of Rob Hell, who's one of the most spectacular business persons in Massachusetts, uh, if not the country, uh, and one of the secret uh, masterful entrepreneurs of our area, I uh, get along the country, uh, he was a good friend of mine, and he had uh, started a small. Uh, at that time, we would call it a telecom reseller, and this is before the Telecom Reform Act of 1996. And he is a small business that's growing, and we would go out at night and drink beers, and you know, complain about whatever was. We we're both single, and and trying to figure out what the world was like, and. He uh, one day just said, "Well, you're not happy over there. I have all these things. We're growing and trying to figure it out. Why don't you come join me?" And uh, it became this very um, important leap of faith moment, or a leap uh, leap off the cliff point for me. And I, I credit my now wife, Gita, as well for uh, helping me say, "You're not happy. You're you're frustrated by some of these things. And um, there's a lot that Rob's doing that is interesting to you. Do it." Why
0: not my old partner Chris Colbert used to say that good people crave consequence, meaning they want the work that they do to have impact, and it's one of the most challenging things in any service, particularly a professional services role, right? Is that it, you know the good news is you're in and you're out, but the bad news is you're in and you're yeah. out, right? And you don't have that sense of ownership and impact, and you don't you know sort of follow it through, and and uh, I, I think that. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs are driven into startups and into creating companies and whatever because of that search for, for consequence. Like, you're going to work hard no matter what you do. You want to feel like you're working hard for
1: something material, you know? Hey, you know, because you and I had the, the good fortune to work together back at Mcube, and the same is true across every position I've had. There's this sense of being able to say, we did that, and we we, we built that, created that, help morph that shape that with a level of gravitas and success which is and it's not about anything more than that sense of consequence i think you chose a great word word for it we we put something together that's of consequence yeah uh, that has an impact on the world and that impact can take all sorts of all sorts of different shapes yeah, you got addicted to it too uh, I, yeah you want you it, want it, that it, it, it's it's it will never end yeah it will never end so how did that work out, your, your adventure into this? Um... Well, so it, it, it's fascinating. So the, the, the company was called Network Plus. Uh, it was a spectacular company. We were relatively small when I joined. We ended up, again, remember, Telecom Reform Act hit in 1996. All sorts of deregulation started to happen, created all sorts of opportunity. Internet, what I'll call 1.0, hit, you know, 98-ish time frame. And we took off like a rocket ship. We had a direct sales force model. We had a very aggressive in sales culture. Um, And uh, Rob, uh, the founder and CEO, I was the chief operating officer of the company, has a, a magic and a discipline about sales, which was incredibly educational for me and I, I carry much of that with me to this day. You know, we're a couple guys, we didn't know anything, and suddenly we find ourselves building a telecom network. I mean, really, I mean, we're buy, buying infrastructure and switches and fiber routes and deploying fiber, and we're, trying, we're figuring out how to do all this stuff and build the teams in and around it, and the company became quite substantive. We, uh, we ended up going public on NASDAQ, uh, and as opposed to a lot of sort of the dot-com uh, public companies, we, we were really quite a substantive organization. We grew to over 300 million in revenue generating positive EBITDA uh, we were king of the worlds um, now unfortunately 9/11 hit and then all sorts of badness hit the world and we had a lot of uh, um, stuff in uh, some people in world trade and uh, post 9/11 uh, that, that world ended you know? sure that world ended so but uh, it was an experience that I would not trade for anything and I would call it dispositive.
0: You know, reflecting back on that life experience, like what do you what did you take away from that that you just you had no clue about when you
1: started? it's it's a, it's a great question there there are there are many lessons. I wouldn't say I didn't have a clue about it, but it brought it home, something that I've always known from being one of nine kids and something I said early on. it's It's the importance of teamwork and alignment. Great organizations, and we've all been part of them, uh, we've all been part of organizations that haven't worked as well. And it's always been around teamwork and alignment and to borrow uh, a patriot statement about doing your job and making sure that people knew what those jobs were and people were were driving towards that. And Network Plus executed so incredibly well. Uh, we had a formula. We stuck to the formula. We would challenge the formula. By the way, there's no, okay, this is the formula. This is what we do. You challenge yeah. it every day. And hey, listen, we were doing some really interesting things, too. We, we were deploying... Uh, Data and hosting centers before they were vogue. We were experimenting with uh, voice over DSL before vogue. Mostly because we were just incredibly curious and in trying to find: are there new ways back to console? Are there new ways to do this stuff? And it was a very exciting time in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, but teamwork and importance of teamwork were dispositive. Drill into the sales thing for me. What yeah. did you? What what habits did you pick up
0: relative yeah. to the way you sell and the way you think about customers? You know, from... from, from uh, well, now. the
1: importance of relationship. Uh, the This model, this sales model, was a face-to-face sales model, though there was a lot over the phone as well. And it was a learning of, of mostly the disciplines around sales. Um, and it is a discipline. Um, it can be taught. It can be learned. There are people who have more skill at it than natural skill and, than, than others, of course. But sticking to that program... Uh, and sticking to the disciplines, it was no different than working out. Uh, you need to make so many phone calls within so many periods of time. You you, you will right. you, you will get you will get it done. Uh, you'll have so many conversations that that's there. But there there all there was the arc of sales, uh, and then there was the, as we all know, the arc of transitioning what salespeople said into product and to things that you actually deliver. And sometimes there's a gap there. Sometimes there's not there's not uh, that, that that made it. I mean it, it was just it was fun
0: that company you know ended up not where where you would um, you had hoped it sounds like and I know having worked with you I know you know you're emotionally vested in the things that you do you're obviously passionate about that company and about the team that you built it with how did the how did the end of that company affect you
1: we missed a Small. What for us was a small five million dollars revenue covenant on a three hundred million dollars business, and we were, said, "Hey, you guys, you guys have to sell yourselves." Yeah. Uh, and and that was um, brutal because we did put a tremendous amount of time, energy, and, and effort, and, and more importantly, the the team. It was a family, like uh, like all good businesses it was a family, and uh, and we had to force ourselves to divorce and uh, and and move out into other parts of the world. It's, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's yeah. brutal. But we're all still close. So. Yeah, that's um, good. Yeah, I say, you know,
0: companies come and go, but relationships endure, you know. Very true. Um, and um, I think it's important to maintain that philosophy for people who do what we do.
1: Yeah, if you um, have to. Because
0: it's messy sometimes. So you get through that experience. Hopefully, after the IPO, you paid off your school debt. Yeah, yeah, I, I um, did get out of school debt. Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Um, so what came next? meeting up with a couple of crazy individuals named Jeff Glass and Mike Triano and Ishwar and Andy Miller at a company called Mcube, uh, which was at the very beginning of the mobile revolution in, in many ways.
0: Yeah, when, when we met you, we were, as Jeff would say, we were the 800-pound gorilla in a non-existent industry. <laughs> um, but we, we had we had gotten to a place of product market fit, and we were starting to grow and struggling with you know, how to manage that growth and a lot of operational issues. And, you know, what were your impressions of that business, um, you know, coming in? Uh, do, you, do you think back to those first set of meetings? Because we, we were, we really needed help at that uh, time.
1: Undisciplined yeah. is, is probably the word that, that uh, I, the most fascinating thing about M-Cube was not just the space. Mobile was, uh, someone like myself was coming out of the telecom space, but it was more traditional landline and data. Um mobile was an evolving beast. So there was the mobile aspect to it. But the key players in the organization were incredibly impressive people. Uh so the, the talent pool uh was 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 there. Uh and going back to what you your comment around Jeff, the part of this was all these great things that we could do that the market wasn't ready to have done yet, but then product market started to fit and the world started to take off. Um and, again, it highlights something for me. I do have a strong operational bent, uh, as, you, as you know, and I've seen it. I, I saw it at Network Plus. Uh, I saw it at M-Cube. Um And I'm maybe a bit of a contrarian on this. Um, people underinvest in their infrastructure and technology stacks all the time, and I think if you are going to be successful, that will come back and haunt you. Uh, and people perhaps preserve some capital along the way in doing that, but I think along the way they end up spending a lot more money uh, than investing in a a few more things and uh, and more engineers and, and the like. And, yeah, everyone has to manage and will work within a budget, but if and when scale hits, if you're not ready for scale, and you have not planned for scale. Now, that's getting easier today with things like AWS, and there are some, some interesting things you can do. But in those days, as you, you recall, uh, <laughs> we can have some very interesting issues. And, um, but you, you plan for success. You also have, obviously you know, have to figure out your downsides and what can go wrong. Uh, but you engineer yourself to win.
0: You know, that was definitely something I took away from that one, too. Um, because, uh, you know, having struggled so long to get traction, it felt like it all happened, you know, very fast. Like, it, it takes forever to kind of get to that bend in the curve. But once you get there, it just happens way faster than you can prepare for it. So so the tricky bit is, is how do you at least, you know, you know... At least put the pilings in so that That's you right. can hold up a bigger building. Right. You know,
1: yeah, you, you um, can't build a superhighway yeah. before you're ready for it. Yeah. But but you need to know what the the, the rights of way are and how you're going to put there to take your exception with the piling There there are things one can do to accomplish that. And it, it, it's a tricky balance, and you know part of that is just having lived through some of these things like you and I have. So it's it's experience with this. I don't know who said it. This the statement. Um, uh, good judgment is a function of uh, uh, a good experience, but good experience is a function of bad judgment, or something along <laughs> yeah, yeah. something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 true. It's true.
0: It's funny. M um, uh, was uh, originally mobile marketing management. That's where the name came That's from. Name came from. Uh, we had moved on to that uh, from that to mobile messaging management and built up the, the um, gateway business and then eventually mobile media management, which is what Andy told uh, people that it was uh, in, in his part of the business. But but one of the things that we did was this mobile case game for uh, for uh, a TV show called Deal or No Deal, which eventually became infamous, and um, which caused us all a little b- bit of money. But you want to test the network, right? <laughs> Launch a game on network television and the biggest performing show in prime time and, and, um, boy, it, it almost killed us. Uh, yeah. It almost killed us. Um, you know, s- but it didn't. It but didn't. It, didn't. it
1: didn't. And the reason it didn't was the team that was there. Uh, lesser teams I do not think would have survived that. Uh, and when I say lesser teams, not just the um, native or ability. In, and we had some very powerfully smart individuals there. But it was it was the concept of the team in and of itself and how people supported each other, uh, supported the mission. And it goes back to this, again, a common theme that I will hit time and time again is team, 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 team. Yeah. Teams win. Teams win. And if you can align and get the right people there, that's when magic happens. And candidly, that's when it's fun because who wants to do that on their own? Yeah. That's just boring.
0: You know, I, I, the other thing that, that as we we talk about this that I recall so vividly is the, is the tipping point, you know, I call it the, the, um, the valley of discontinuous change, right? <laughs> you know, startups run on, on acts of individual heroism. And, um, you know, but businesses run on systems and processes that produce predictable results. And there is this tipping point where, you know, the people who have been your heroes in, in regime one <laughs> become cowboys in regime two. Yeah. And... Um, and that's a that's a really painful transition for a company, and and you know that really came into focus for me during that experience is that you're absolutely right without the individual heroism of people that just refused to let the thing go down even when smoke was coming out of the server, <laughs> um, uh, but but later as we grew and as we matured and as we became really an integral part of the infrastructure of the carriers. Used to like,
1: you know. We were a um, critical part of the mobile infrastructure of North America.
0: Yeah, that that growing
1: up process, you know, it was painful. Uh,
0: it's very
1: painful. Uh, you know, when you think, you, picking up on some of what you said, um, people who are heroes at certain stages. Maybe you're not heroes at second stages, and people sometimes have to take, shift their responsibilities and focuses. And those are hard transitions for individuals to make, and sometimes for teams to make. Yeah. Um, but they're necessary. Um, and it happens to all of us at various various stages uh, in, in, in our careers. Um, and, but that's part of the growth curve um, of being uh, trying to run and, and, and drive an organization.
0: That's right. All right, so uh, we had a nice outcome with the cube and yeah. uh, big exit back in two thousand six, and and uh, you went right into Turbine, as I recall. I
1: well, I, I stayed with uh, we were acquired by Verisign, and uh, stayed with Verisign for about six stayed at Verisign for about six months uh, before heading to Turbine, which going back to. How do you move from telecom company number one to M Cube, which is helping create the mobile infrastructure, to Turbine, which is a massive multiplayer online gaming company? Wildly different businesses. Um, How did
0: you think about that? I mean, you must think of yourself as a as a you know general manager as opposed to a um, you know a, a vertical specialist.
1: I consider myself curious is probably the key word I would choose, but analytical. I'm curious about a lot of stuff, but uh, you know, there are some things I don't think I can try to bite off. Turbine, going into Turbine, Bob Davis, uh, who was one of the principal investors there, did a great job of trying to describe the company and some of the challenges because there were some very real challenges in that company. And my thought processes were, first, at that time you had things like Second Life starting to emerge uh, and there were there was this growing ecosystem of social digital, uh, and massive multiplayer online games are just that they're they're it's a, it's a social it's a, it's a social social experience, and that became very fascinating for me. But it's instantiated within this game world and this fantasy world, which has their own series of dynamics, which are really interesting and challenging. Um, so I looked at the company and the company. Was uh, had some amazing assets and amazing talent, a very large company, uh, you know, for a a startup, so to speak. There were at that time, there were about 200 people there. Uh, When we finally ended up selling to Warner Brothers, we were probably around just shy of 400 people. Uh, But uh, it it was so interesting and intriguing. You had these crazy, mad sign. computer scientists, heavy graphic guys from MIT, at the same time you had these amazing artists and you had these amazing IPs like Lord of the Rings that we have the rights to and Dungeons and Dragons so it was very much like running a a studio, it was a studio, it's called the Game Studio Um, uh, but on top of that studio has to be the overall distribution network we had to be the cinema and all those other things as well We're not just making the movie and shipping it out Uh, so it's a multi-layered problem uh, and complicated things just interest me Hmm. Uh, they intellectually interest me.
0: What did, what did you take away from that experience? Um,
1: Don't uh, go into a gaming business.
0: <laughs> no, <laughs> not, that was a pretty yeah. good outcome, too. Yeah, yeah, uh, we, yeah, we, yeah. We,
1: were, we were very fortunate. Uh, we were acquired by Warner Brothers, uh, which is a wonderful organization, a spectacular organization. The challenge with anything that's an entertainment bent to it, uh, especially the, the, the gaming dimension, is at the end of the day, you are... Trying to create fun um, You know Movies talk about entertainment Well it could be a romance It could be you know sh- Whatever an adventure story The same is true in a game But you have to create, create fun And fun is not formulaic Fun is very very hard So it tends to be a hits business um, And these games Are very very expensive uh, The in, they. they the games that are coming out today well surpassed 100 millions of dollars in, in, in production costs. Uh, so they're big, big bets. Um, so I don't like that end of it. That said, one of the things that Turbine did and, and what became really important for Warner Brothers, and I think where Turbine really created its mark in addition to helping invent the MMO space, uh, which is probably the most important invention they did, is the game was one of the very first massive multiplayer online games in North America. Not, I think it was the very first to shift from a uh, a SKU model to a free-to-play model with microtransactions and micro-digital goods inside the game. Uh, That sounds really normal today. At that time, it was a shocking thing to happen. And it was an interesting conversation with investors as well. Uh, Yeah, we're going to give it away for free and then people are gonna buy little digital swords and, and other things inside the game. Um, what, why? What, what led to, you
0: know, that's a big risk to undertake. Yes. What, what led to the decision to do that?
1: So the the way these worlds work, the the budgets to support them, we simply didn't have enough of a subscriber base to allow us to go in a traditional model like World of Warcraft was doing were ultimately eating our lunch. Uh, when you look across the tapestry of choices that we could make, and as the management team was wrestling with this, the options were we can continue down the same path we were going down where we're just creating content for these same worlds and trying to monetize it the old-fashioned way. It wasn't working. Um, and it's very hard to change these worlds once they're out there. Sure. Two, we could just create new games, which is actually a great thing to do. Um, And the way Turbine was engineered over the course of its history was in and around um, high-production MMO worlds. So it was not geared at that time to say, okay, let's make mobile games, or very light games where you could put out a whole bunch of stuff and disperse your risk and hopefully get a couple hits out of a few, maybe you have an Angry sure, Birds. portfolio strategy. Exactly, a portfolio yeah. strategy. Uh, it, it just was not the DNA of that particular company to do it. Um, if you then look at what was happening in Korea, uh, which is probably the most advanced gaming market in the world, they had already made this transition, but it hadn't happened over here. But ultimately, given some historical decisions that had been made in the company before we got there, the best path with the best outcome for the investors and the employer, employees and, and the company and the world we were trying to create was to just turn the model on its head. And we were lucky on several fronts. First, we had some incredibly talented game designers. And when you turn a game free-to-play, you're totally changing a whole host of game dynamics and the in-game economy, and a whole number of interesting things. Uh, and we were able to do that successfully without ruining the game. Uh, so it became a part of the game as opposed to an intrusion on the game. It wasn't something grafted on. It was embedded inside. It was natural. It felt, it felt right. Uh, doing that is really, really hard. Two, we had to build a whole host of marketing skills that were very different from traditional game companies at that time, where we started to say, oh boy, we really need to gather all the data and understand what people are doing inside these games at a higher level, uh, and then understand how we would market a sword or a cape or some, some other in-game type thing uh, to someone. So we were actually doing, inside these virtual worlds, a lot of what is happening in the ad space today. Uh, it became incredibly data driven, and that was sort of a revolution number two. We had to build that infrastructure, and, and then thirdly, we had to do this across the places the game was deployed, uh, and it was deployed and around the world. So we had culturalization issues uh, that needed to be addressed here. You apply those two, th- those those dimensions, and what ultimately occurred is Turbine became an expert at the free-to-play business model in high production games as opposed to uh, a social game uh, which you fly, flip in and out of it after five minutes while you're waiting on on a flight. Uh, And for a number of large organizations, that was incredibly valuable because they saw this world happening uh, before their eyes. And the reason ultimately, I believe, the reason ultimately Warner Brothers acquired the company was we had... Overlap in and around some IP. We both, uh, Warner Brothers produced the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, we had rights to multiplayer games with Lord of the Rings. But more importantly uh, was the skill sets of how to run a digital economy and a, a in-game store uh, that can support this new type of business model because the business model is vastly superior to the old buy a skew at the shop. Uh, and hey, I bought... This game for fifty bucks, and that's what I got. We would have people spending twenty thousand dollars a month uh, in game, uh, which was was you know wonderful. Right. Um, so it, it was a very stressful time because we were really turning the business on its head. Um, at the same time, it was just like back to our M experiences uh, when we turned it on. That first day, and we suddenly saw all these transactions starting to fly through, and the cash registers starting to spin and ring. It was uh, it, it was uh, it was very fulfilling for for the team there, and that team deserved that because they had spent such a creative group of people, uh, and they deserved that success.
0: Talk about buy with me in a little while, but for someone who's very operationally focused, so much of your life experience is involved in some form of business model innovation, um, which is incredibly disruptive, and um, and uh, you know. Makes the operations challenge exponentially more difficult because, you know, operations is about getting to excellence in a steady state where you fix a set of parameters around the business and you go do something extremely well, right? That's sort of your sweet spot, though, is that you're trying to undertake roles that businesses that, that to be successful, have to have operational excellence in a context where you have a business model that's shifting and in some places, you know, very... uh,
1: Dramatically. Yeah. Well, you look at the world today. Fifty years ago, the average lifespan, uh, the average age rather, of a, a company on the Fortune 500 list was something like 60 years old. People are, esti- Fortune is estimating that in 2020, the average age will be 12 years old. Things are collapsing, and we see this yeah. every day. the The world is dynamic. The need to innovate, the need to to challenge and and, and shift is is there. So I would actually argue that. Operational excellence requires you to be challenging your business model all the time, uh, and and trying to explore um, how you could perhaps um, do it better uh, or turn it on its head. Doesn't mean you have to do it. It just means you need to be thinking it through. Sometimes it's born of desperation. Sure. Uh, Turbo is more of a, we got to do something here. This is not going to work. Uh, other times, you know, it's just uh, it, it's it's born of just creativity and, and, and the like. Sometimes it's born of luck. But I think that will continue to accelerate. The half-life of companies is just shrinking, 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 shrinking. So the need for flexibility and flexibility of thought patterns and operational modes and business models uh, are at an increasing premium, uh, which, by the way, is something that I think liberal arts graduates and lawyers are actually really good at. Yeah, And people who have to context shift a lot. Right. Uh, and if you can context shift, and, and as long as you're doing it analytically, and you're, you're looking at the data to the extent the data is available, sometimes not always available. Sometimes there are the leap of faith that you need to make. It, it's it's fun. So yeah, the there have been a number of, of shifts and, and, and challenges. But you know, I look at we had the um, telecom internet revolution one uh network plus. We had. M Cube and the mobile revolution. Uh, how fortunate to be part of those two things, and then the virtual world slash uh, massive multiplayer gaming revolution, which is still rippling through the entire world today. It's really fundamentally changed how entertainment's being done. Uh, be part of part of that, and more. Hopefully, more to come. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been fun.
0: Yeah, but that's not luck. You're, something about that is attractive to you. Complex, um, as I said,
1: com- uh, the, it's complicated. I like complexity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The hairy edge of innovation—it's—it's—it gets ugly out there. <laughs> it gets ugly. Sometimes uh, it doesn't work uh, either. I've had those too. So, um, two two questions in this vein. Um, first, you know, it's interesting. You sort of conflate company and business. You know, in your as you were describing, uh, the rate of change. Do you think you know as, right? It's really a business that has a twelve-year half-life. Right. Correct. A company that could figure out how to evolve its business and, in some cases, transform it Can live could forever. survive indefinitely. In the future, which you think will be the more prevalent model? Do you think you, the only big companies will be the ones that can that can process change and adapt their businesses as the world changes, or do you think you'll have like companies have a useful life that is the life of the business they start with, and then they dissolve or merge? You know, how how do you think about that?
1: Um, great question. Uh, I've never really quite thought about it the way you framed it. The company needs to innovate. Yeah. Uh, and that innovation often will happen around the business model. What is what is a business model? You know, it's, it's, it's not just it's not the pricing. It's, it's 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 much more than that. Right. It's it's what the reason to be is. Uh, what are you producing? How are you producing it? How are you selling it? How are you engaging it? Um, and it's this constant uh, flow and, uh, and 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 dynamic. Dynamic. And I think that's why. You and myself and the Jeffs and the Andes of the world love this crazy stuff that we do, because it's it's never done, yeah. and it never will be done. And thank God, because God, that would be boring. What would we do? What would you do? You yeah, have to go be lawyers. <laughs> I'm have to go
0: be lawyers. <laughs> um, all right. So if you're if you're talking with an entrepreneur and and he's at one of these inflection points and he realizes something's wrong in my business model. I got to change it. I got to figure out another way. You know, what's the best piece of advice, you know, you would give someone in that situation who, who needs to undertake some fundamental transformation of the way the economics work in their model, you know, having been through that now, you know,
1: a couple of, a couple of times? There are a number of uh, things that I think are important. First, in terms of whatever that shift is that you think you to move from point A to point B. Before you settle on point B, make sure you looked at point C, D, E, F, G, H, and, and try to figure out all right. those other attributes as well and have as much data that can inform that for you as you can. It'll never be perfect. It'll never be 100%. Um, but I'd be very cautious about saying, well, this didn't work, so we have to do I yeah. say, so, well, what, what's, what are the other avenues? This is at
0: the level of choosing the model. choosing the model. Before, before you focus on how to do it
1: right. Then, you do it. Yeah. Um, then once you've recognized that, you need to make sure that your ability to get from point A to point B is viable, both from a skill set standpoint, a capital standpoint, um, a, a time standpoint. You might be able to get there, but the market might have already shifted by the time. If it's going to right. take you three years, that that that's a, that's a lifetime. Uh, that that might might not work. So, do you? I'd call it both skill set slash team. Uh, capital, the, the money to do it, and, and and the time window in which you can effectuate it, and then do those things align, and then also you have to make sure that your investors are on are, are on board, uh, because and generally I, don't, I think uh, that's usually less of a problem if when you're trying to run an organization, you usually are sharing that type of information on a regular basis, but maybe some healthy skepticism and, and pushback by. Your board and the like, but that's what the board's job. Uh, your job is to say this is the path we need to take, and this is why. Uh, and and then once you lock on it, sprint, speed, 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 speed.
0: There's a lot written about how venture capitalists pick companies, right? How do you decide who to invest in? Um, you know, but a venture capitalist can can have you know might be invested in twenty five companies at any given time and he only needs one or two of them to work out correct um as an operator you know we 're challenged to make bets that it 's going to work it 's going to be five years of your life and you 're not doing anything else yeah. um How do you think about the decision
1: of what to do next? The roads twist and turn there has to be an element of it that captures. Imagination—that's the most important thing. Because without that, there's not an emotional connection. That's that's number one. Are you inspired by what this company could be, or is, or what it could be, or where you think it might 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 go to? And then, two, there's a lot of analytics to it. Because you said these are big time commitments, and we all, all we have is time. And every day is one less day that we have here. Uh, so we have to make sure that we're, we're making good bets and some have been good and some have, have not worked out. I still don't think there were bad bets. Buy with me didn't work. Uh, it went down ugly. Uh, you know, I was there for, I think a total of nine months. Um, but what was captivating about that particular opportunity was this concept of the local merchant and trying to become a new platform for the local merchant. And that was really intriguing uh, and there was an opportunity there, and still some interesting things going on in, yeah. in, in, in that space. So, but you know, it, it didn't work, and, and that, that's the way it goes mm-hmm. sometimes. We were a little too late and uh, not fast enough okay. uh, at, the bottom, at, the bottom, at the end of the day. What was the Skyhook experience? Um. Fascinating. Uh, so, uh, Skyhook was, in essence, the inventor of mobile locations. And uh, Ted Morgan, who founded the company, and Mike Sheen, the two founders there, really were ahead of the curve, I think, in uh, trying to uh, see around the corner. Um, and they built a great technology. They hit a number of roadblocks uh, that were very difficult. Um, there's a lot of litigation in and around with Google, uh, which has been resolved, but I can't go into it. Uh, resolved very positively, but I can't go into it beyond that. Skyhook again had to change its business model. It grew up trying with a goal to deploy its SDK in carriers, big OEMs, and phone manufacturers. In Apple, we were the location system for Apple, and we tried it in Samsung and, and like. But that world started to, to shift. Android took off, and Google controlled location for Android. Uh, there goes half the market or whatever sure. right, right then and there. So the the challenge at Skyhook was okay, we have this amazing capability. And again, how can we shift and change our business in for a world that's shifted underneath us? And the company had to do that uh, from behind where it wanted to be, uh, as opposed to in front of where it, 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 you'd rather be in front of it instead of behind it. But we were behind it. Uh, and a lot of what we were been focused on, what we're focused on, were really uh, too broad areas. Number one, uh, the emergence of IoT requires uh, the the Internet of Things. Uh, location is incredibly important there. Um, but the footprint for location in an IoT world in many ways is shrinking. Uh, so goal number one was how do we shrink the capability of Location or shrink the footprint of location. This so is a
0: more granular understanding of exactly where you not, are.
1: Not not only exactly where you are, but the capability to determine that. So, a phone. One one of the challenges of the location on this particular phone today is okay. It sucks your battery. Okay, so goal number one with location today was, oh, you have GPS. Well, GPS only works in some places. It, that sucks your battery even more. Sure. And it's, you actually get the best location with a hybrid of GPS and Wi-Fi location and cellular and putting all these things together, some of Skyhook's innovations, which I won't go into. But the if suddenly now you're a shipping container, you want to know where that shipping container is, wow, well, you know, they don't even have a battery. <laughs> so... But you can get a battery and do some stuff. How do you innovate on location? How do you innovate on that capability to allow dumber devices than a smart? This is called a smartphone. The internet of the thing is filled with dumb devices. Yeah. They're not smart devices. They're trying to make them smart. With limited resources, maybe they don't even have a Wi-Fi chip, uh, or they have limited power capabilities, more limited than this. How do you shrink that capability down to allow location and the power of location, which is a very important signal, it opens up many, many worlds uh, to, to be enabled in, in that ecosystem. So we did a lot of work there. And indeed, our, our IoT solution shrunk the location world uh, that we have on this thing by about 600x. Uh, so it opened up a, a whole new market for us that uh, is, it was going well. And I believe I'm no longer with the company. I left in the, uh, in the middle of the summer. It is continuing to, to go well. Uh, That was number one. Number two, uh, again, how do you innovate? The market shifted underneath you. Uh, How do do we look at the world differently? Skyhook is on millions of devices, and we have this amazing network of billions of location signals uh, around the world and literally billions of transactions flowing through their ecosystem every day. Uh, So the question is, that's a tremendous amount of data. What can one do with the data? And and that's where some interesting things emerge with machine learning and some other areas. We can say, how do we apply this data to other domains uh, to allow new things to happen? Uh, And there are location-specific things in and around advertising that are still emergent in the world. No no one's really cracked that yet, but Skyhook is working hard to do that. Uh, And that was the the, the next shift. But your question was, how was Skyhook? Skyhook was an amazing group of technologists, relatively small company great technology that found itself in a, in, a, in a bind because the world shifted underneath it and uh, one of the largest companies in the world, uh, they ended up in a fight with Google. So that, that made it hard, so the company needed to shift and fortunately we were able to affect some of those shifts again.
0: I know you're on to a new project and and uh, excited about it. What can you tell us about uh, what's next?
1: So um, a lot of everything I've ever touched as a business, has involved data. Really, at the end of the day, uh, some of the innovations we had at Network Plus went around the data. You're, you're running a telecom network, again, there's, there's power in that data. Uh, M-cube, uh those transactions that were flowing through it, and once we actually could open up those transactions through a dashboard, at those days, were, were, was eye-opening to people. Boy, that data became powerful. Turbine, uh, how we take this in game data and turn that into actually in game stores and microtransactions was data, was data, was data. Skyhook was data. Uh, so, data is, it's a statement of the obvious, is important stuff. Uh, so, I'm really interested in digital fuel. Um, and if you look at the arc of what's been happening out there, and there's lots that's been written around machine learning and where machine learning is going and how it's applied. Um, and anyone can spin up machine. Given the, ability, the computing cost and other things, machine learning is becoming commoditized in a lot of ways. Maybe not all the algorithms are, but the actual capabilities in and of them are themselves. But I think what will end up becoming truly important in that space, we'll get back to that space, important, is the data that flows into that world. And the fact of the matter is machine learning, computers generally, computational um, structures and computational algorithms, et cetera, are really good at doing this with structured data. We all know what structured data, uh, a database, a uh, spreadsheet, uh, labeled data, tick data, web logs, structured data. of the world's information is unstructured. 90% of that world's information is unstructured. So what is that information? This is unstructured information, what we're we're going through today. Uh, Kramer on Mad Money screaming about whatever stock he's screaming about is unstructured information. What's being said uh, in uh, Le Monde right now, uh, or in the New York Times, or Wall Street Journal, or any number of blogs are unstructured information. That information is still really hard to be used computationally. You can do stuff with it. You can index it and sort of information reduction. It's easy to index and search for stuff. Google does this all the time. But how do you just want to unleash the latent power of that, I'll use the word, data, uh, so it can be used computationally uh, and become a new form of data, a new type of data, a new fuel for the machine learning or the analytical ecosystems of the world. And where I am focused with some people right now is in really trying to build a new type of broadcast network. And that broadcast network is looking at that 90% of unstructured information and with a host of AI capabilities uh, and some novel techniques transform that into something that is algorithmically ready. So it becomes fuel for a smart machine. And that opens up the ability for smart machines to do more than they're doing today. And I think the arc that's in front of us right now is we will be moving to an area where you have machine to machine to machine talking Making decisions, engaging in reasoning, and I guess it's going to be disruptive on a human scale uh, in some ways. But this arc is occurring, and we're trying to create a new type of fuel for that arc and a new type of broadcast network so these smart machines can be fed and consumed. Because the more they have, especially if it's important and relevant information, not all information is created equally, it becomes very powerful. Uh, so I'm focused on creating a new fuel company, but it's Fuel for Smart Machines. All right, Fuel for Smart
0: Machines. Very excited to see uh, what's next in the arc of uh, Jim Crowley's uh, storied career. And we um, just want to thank him for spending time with me. We actually went out to grab a drink and a bite after that. And uh, uh, boy, it's true, you know what we said that um, you know, companies come and go, but the relationships that you make along the way are really what it's all about. All right, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next week.